0: Welcome to the ASHP Advantage podcast. Engaging the experts on ASHP official. Featuring conversations with top level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays, where we will sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Jamie Kalis and I will be your host today. I'm the director of pharmacy with Henry Ford Health System in Detroit, Michigan. This podcast is part of an educational initiative entitled Examining the Evidence for Reversal of Direct Oral Anticoagulants, which is supported by an educational grant from Alexion Pharmaceuticals, and it is for informational purposes and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional information is available at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash stop DOAC bleed. Now we know that the emergency department is often the first stop for a patient who presents with bleeding related to the direct acting oral anticoagulants or DOACs as we call them. And many hospitals have established dedicated ED pharmacy services for at least part of the day. And this really puts the ED pharmacist in a very good position to influence the appropriate use of reversal agents for patients presenting with DOAC related bleeding. Fortunately. We have a very experienced emergency department pharmacist with us today, Darius Faison, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist in emergency medicine at Henry Ford Wyandotte Hospital in Detroit. Welcome, Dr. Faison, for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I know that you've worked at a variety of emergency departments so far in your career. Can you tell me a little bit about how those sites uh, differed? Certainly. Each. Emergency department
1: has a unique set of characteristics that, you know, make patient care and pharmacy involvement in that patient care, you know, that experience become more unique. So, with respect to my history of working in the emergency department, I can give you a little bit of background. Um, I worked in a rural community um, level two trauma center, I worked at a tertiary academic level one trauma center, and a level three. Community hospital, um, so quite a few experiences uh, in my in my past there. But each practice site had various patient populations that may have encouraged a little bit more involvement from pharmacy, just depending on the type of care that you know needed to be received for the patient. So in the rural setting, uh, we saw a little bit more traumas, um, a lot more cardiac and pulmonary related cases. We transfer out a lot of patients, um, and there was uh, not as many resources available as you might see in a suburban or urban area. In the suburban emergency department, which is where I currently work now, um, we have a little bit more resources, patient cases, uh, provide a little bit more variety, and we are part of a health system, so it helps that we have a lot of standardized approaches to uh, how we manage our patient populations. In addition to that if we need to transfer someone out we can usually transfer them you know to a fairly close emergency department um, and not have to use say a helicopter emergency medical service and in the urban or you know level one tertiary academic hospital setting we saw a lot more variety of patient cases and so there were definitely opportunities for pharmacists to get involved with the clinical management of more acutely ill patients. So, you know, even though each emergency department is there to represent, or excuse me, there to serve, you know, the patients that they see in the community, certain unique aspects of them uh, forced us to kind of pivot in a way that um,
0: helped with care. So at these three different types of uh, EDs that you practiced in, did your role differ much? And if so, how? Yes,
1: uh, my role, in each side, I had to pivot a little bit just depending on the needs of the emergency department. For one, with the rural hospital setting, the service was a bit new. So our focus was really on integrating pharmacy and pharmacy services on as a seven-day service into the emergency department workflow that would help them reduce spending uh, and address a lot of ambulatory and urgent care needs. Research shows that overall acuity of ED visits in the rural setting are much less than the uh, urban setting or suburban setting. So there was a lot of opportunity for pharmacists to intervene on, you know, in, a urgent or in an urgent care capacity or even an ambulatory care capacity. So my role at that time was spent developing a lot of clinical pathways um, that had not yet been realized in that setting. Um, In addition to providing drug information services and attending codes, uh, I also served as a drug information expert while participating um, in those committees. We also did medication prescription reviews for patients who were being discharged. We were also engaged in cultural review follow-up. So we got to spend a little bit more time with the granular responsibilities of pharmacy and the emergency department there. In the suburban setting or the level two, or excuse me, level three trauma center setting, I saw a lot of the same things that I saw in a rural setting, but because we had a little bit more resources, um, our patient cases were a bit more critically ill, We spent less time on the granular things and more time on overseeing a lot of programs. So, our service currently has a nearly 24-hour coverage of pharmacy services that pushes us to be at the bedside more often. We are involved in um, code sepsis alerts. Um, We're involved in um, stroke and cardiac arrest, obviously, but... I also oversee the transitional care process uh, between you know the emergency department to the various hospitals or up to the floors. and then we also have a medication reconciliation process. In the larger academic uh, teaching hospital setting, the focus of the emergency department pharmacist is more with distribution because we had a uh, pharmacy within the emergency department, and that's not something that a lot of places have. So it's a unique experience, but it gave us time to really delve into preparation of the medication and the distribution side of it, whereas in other sites, I was more clinically out on the floors talking to patients um, and talking to providers. Not to say that 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 didn't happen or doesn't happen at the academic teaching site, but because there were so many more resources on the inpatient side, it it enabled us
0: uh, in that area to focus on the distribution. Okay, and I'm sure that you probably got involved with anybody that came in with uh, anticoagulant or DOAC-related bleeding at all those sites, right? Correct, at each of those sites, we saw a lot of DOAC-related bleeding. Okay, so during the webinars that are part of this educational initiative, we discussed the evidence-based guidelines for anticoagulant reversal. And these guidelines recommend specific reversal agents like idarucizumab and Indexinet Alpha as first-line treatments but do suggest that the non-specific agents, such as the four factor PCCs and activated PCC products can be used as second line agents if, if those first line agents aren't ab- available. Uh, based on some recently pro- published survey data, it's evident that not everyone has access to these first line uh, reversal agents. So what strategies do you recommend for managing DOAC related bleeds when these first line agents aren't available at your site? Yeah, so that's always been a challenge and something that I
1: have personally had to deal with when working in one of those emergency department sites that did not have an antidote available. But there is, there are a lot of data that support the use of four factor PCCs as well as activated PCCs in the management of DOAC related bleeds. You know, if you have someone who comes in with a Dibicotran related bleed, you could potentially use an activated PCC because there is data showing that it does restore some of the thrombin generation in the presence of Dabigatrans. So that's always been an option, and that's something that I've always recommended uh, to providers when you know they're asking me for my recommendation. In the setting of, say, a Pixaban or a Viroxaban, um, the data is kind of flipped on that. So Kcentra or the four factor PCCs tend to better uh, in the presence of the factor 10a inhibitors so I generally go in that direction when you know those patients do present in our hospital I also try and evaluate you know what's what where is the bleed at and you know how significant is the bleed that based on the guidelines that are available to us that is how we should be evaluating those patients um, and typically once that conversation is had you know oftentimes the Providers will say, okay, well, you know, maybe the bleed isn't as severe, or maybe the site isn't as big of a concern, and maybe we don't need to jump to this right now. Or maybe we can just transfer the patient and let them manage manage the patient once they get to another institution. You know, if you have time to kind of address the, you know, address whether or not they even need anything in that setting, um, that may help with the the concern of do we can we even give factor PCC or activated PCC if we're supposed to be giving, say, Iterosuzumab or
0: Dexanet-Alpha. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, I think if you think back to the early days of DOACs when we really had nothing, you know, many of us were creating reversal guidelines for the first time for, for anticoagulation and we were really making things up based on very poor quality data. In fact, in vitro and animal studies and things we never would make drug therapy uh, policy decisions on previously. And I think we've benefited from the fact that people have used the non specific agents now for several years for reversal of DOEX. And there's there's some observational data, at least out there, that we didn't have back in the beginning. So, you know, I, I agree. Um, you know, it, it, the second line agents are second line agents for a reason, and it makes sense. Now, part of the process for deciding if a reversal agent should be used includes identifying the DOAC agent the patient has taken. And I know a lot of times ED pharmacists are involved with medication histories, and, or at least overseeing medication histories, but it's critically important in this type of patient uh, in terms of determining what do you do with the patient's management. So how do you proceed when you're unable to obtain a medication history or are really confident in the med history that you're you're getting in a patient who's suspected to have DOAC related bleeding. Yeah, this one is also pretty tricky to to deal with.
1: Um, when all else fails, you can try and rely on some clues that will help illuminate uh, a likely agent. But you know, if you don't have the information, you don't have the information. Oftentimes, patients come in; um, they've been found, uh, you know, by a bystander and. We don't have any information to go off of. So, in those scenarios, we have a risk-benefit discussion with you know, providers. We get trauma or uh, general surgery uh, involved if you know if it's GI-related. We get you know GI involved, and we just kind of have a, a a risk-benefit discussion of: Do we give this patient an agent that may potentially? be costly or may potentially cause some sort of thromboembolic event if we can't even confirm that they aren't even taking the medication. Oftentimes, too, you have to consider, you know, patient might have the medication on the medication history, but they may not actually be taking it. So one strategy that I've used to to help may not always be the best, but one strategy that I've used to help is getting uh, coags uh, if you get an ABTT or anti-10A level, if you're suspecting uh, a fixaban or a then that might actually be um, be helpful down the line to to see if maybe we should probably be giving some sort of reversal agent if, if those come back elevated. Again, you know, data shows that just because they're normal doesn't necessarily mean it's excluded, but if they're elevated, that might actually lead us to to giving something. So in general, you know, a risk-benefit discussion with regard to the cost, uh, quality of life when the patient exits the hospital, et cetera, um, are
0: necessary. But if you don't have the information, you don't have the information. Well, that's a good point about the, the um, using the labs. I, I think that a lot of clinicians really don't understand what the labs mean in context of of the the DO-X, and I think that's a great role for the pharmacist to help people to interpret the the data. You know, it's not incredibly useful, but I could see it being useful in in the setting that you're talking about there. I know there's also pretty significant preparation considerations, particularly with IndexNet Alpha. You know, you're potentially going to need to use several vials and those vials take a while to reconstitute and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, your perspective on kind of the preparation of the of the reversal agents in in context of you know the fact that you're dealing with potentially a pretty severely ill patient that that requires treatment rapidly if if this is the treatment they need yeah with regards to preparation
1: there's been a lot of concern about speed of <laughs> Uh, preparation and delivery to the emergency department, that's oftentimes been a barrier to even wanting to put one one or multiple medications on formulary uh, with regard to to reversal of the anticoagulants. So in each setting that I've been in, um, we've had different methods of preparing the medication and distributing the medication to the emergency department or to the patient's bedside. You know, the first hospital that I worked at, which was a rule community hospital, you know, the pharmacy actually prepared the medications up in the IV room. We did not prepare them at the bedside. Um, we did not have a pharmacy in the emergency department. So that like, prolonged the delivery process and it oftentimes made the technicians or whoever was in the IV room a bit nervous about, you know, preparing those medications where I work now you know the same thing is kind of true but we do have an opportunity to prepare some of those medications at the bedside but it's all based on our hospital policy or protocol uh, oftentimes we do still have to go upstairs you know let's say a patient comes in and we want to try warfarin factor pcc we still have to go upstairs you know calculate the dose look at the uh, vials or the boxes and figure out the factor nine amount and then you know, help the technician prepare the medication in the hood, and and come back out and deliver it to the patient. That that takes a while, and then specifically with index and alpha, you know, there's like you said, five five vials if it's low dose, nine vials for the high dose. and It takes up to five minutes just to dissolve each vial. So there's a lot of opportunity to improve how we how we. Prepare those meds and how quickly we can get them to
0: the patient's bedside. Well, I'm I'm certain we could consider this immediate use uh, versus um, anything that we expect to be be used in a more delayed fashion. But I have heard of uh, institutions that maybe have opted to use the non-specific agents really specifically because they valued speed at which they could get the drug over. You know, over over the choice of drug. So that's definitely, I think, on people's minds, and uh, probably probably a big thing for you as the ED pharmacist to think about. One other question: are patients um, at your the hospital where you're at kept if they present with uh, bleeding, like intracranial hemorrhage or a brain bleed, do they do they stay at your hospital or do they get transferred to another hospital? It varies depending on depending on the severity
1: of the bleed, depending on um, the location of the bleed, and then other factors. Are, currently, we don't have a neurosurgeon on on call 24/7, so you know they make that decision. But oftentimes, we will send them down to another hospital if the bleed is severe enough, or if they feel like they can't manage it at our hospital.
0: And that transfer would likely be within your system. Yes, barring any
1: insurance or patient or family member requests, it would usually be within
0: our health within our health system. Okay. So when they're transferred, do you have any particular role? Is there any opportunity to call ahead and kind of connect the pharmacy dots when you have somebody who's moving from your place to the next place? It will vary. So because I guess we'll start from within our health
1: system, you know, we have a. Pretty decent streamline, I wouldn't call it a protocol, but more just so a coordinated effort within our health system so that if patients are going to be transferred from our hospital to a sister hospital or sister site, we tend to make sure that the patient gets the medications prior to transfer. Likely in those scenarios, if a hospital knows that they're going to get a DOAC related bleed, and let's say, um, you know we find out that the doAC we find out that the doAC was the culprit just before they're transferred out. We hope that they tell the pharmacy staff with them that they're getting someone and they're gonna have to start the preparation process for medications. But if that were not the case, then we typically would call ahead just to make sure that they're aware. If it's outside my or outside of our health system, then you know, we don't always have, we haven't always called and that's something that we can definitely improve upon. But if I know someone at that site, or if I have a relationship with the pharmacist there, then I will sometimes shoot them a text or just call them and say, Hey, you know, this person is coming to your site. You just be prepared. We did or did not give uh, this medication and here was the reason why. So, you know, it's important to make sure that we have a coordinated effort and it's important to make sure that medications are given as quickly as possible. Um, because I, under, as I understand it, a lot of places feel uncomfortable giving, say, a PCC, you know, if they don't have a direct reversal agent, a specific reversal agent before transferring them out to a place that does. So communication is, is going to be imperative to ensuring that
0: care is at the highest standard. Okay, I have one last question for you when you were working in that in that rural hospital emergency department. Was there a standardized approach to DOAC reversal at that site? And what was your role in not necessarily the patient care part of it, but the uh, drug use policy and standardization process? How, How did you participate as the ED pharmacist in that in that process? So at the time, we did not have
1: a, a protocol or guideline in place. We just sort of we sort of made decisions based off of what the ED physician or the trauma physician wanted. As time went on, and we started to evaluate the cost and appropriateness of therapy, we recognized that there was an opportunity to, you know, provide some sort of clinical pathway to managing those. So eventually, we got on board with developing that. My role specifically was to provide the evidence for the use of those medications to make sure that the drugs were on formulary, and then to help with the education when it came to preparation and administration with the nurses and physicians. And then we also had to make sure that we um, educated the uh, staff who were going to be preparing the medications. So even though I, we didn't get a guideline off you know, off the ground immediately,
0: you know, having something in place um, did help streamline care. Okay. Well, that, I think it's important to note that not only does the pharmacist have a role at the bedside taking clinical care of the patient, you know, these more global issues, I think, are really important for pharmacists to get involved with. Well, that's all the time we have today. Um, I want to thank Darius for joining me today and thank you for tuning in to this session of Therapeutic Thursdays. Please don't forget to check out the Initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash stop We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage Podcast, Engaging the Experts.